Good afternoon. I am Jane Harmon, president and CEO of the Center, uh, recovering politician, um, and delighted to welcome uh, my friend, Major General uh, Amos Gilad, back to the Center. Um, it's ironic that after years of speculation, this is the day the president picked to release his long-awaited Middle East peace plan. We all... I'm not sure you want, let's, let's wait and learn more about it before we take credit for it, Matt. Uh, that's what I was about to say. We all need to learn more details, but no doubt it will face some challenges uh, from the Palestinians, uh, perhaps from some in Israel and perhaps from Israel's neighbors, along with uh, some in the United States. Uh, but it's not the topic of discussion today. And impeachment is not the topic of discussion today. The topic is Russia. Uh, Amos... Uh, is the executive director of the Herzliya Institute for Policy and Strategy, IPS. He spent three decades in the, uh, in the IDF, uh, in Israel's Defense Ministry, and in the Military Intelligence Corps. He also chairs the annual Herzliya Conference, which is highly respected and which I've attended a few times and plan to come back to this May. Uh, good invitation. Thank you very much. I accept. Um, <laughs> I saw Amos... Uh, on many occasions during my 25 trips to Israel and the region as a member of Congress. I've been there since. Also, he is, uh, in addition to a warrior, uh, he is a thought leader and fierce advocate for a peaceful and stable future for America's only democratic ally in the Middle East. Today, he's here with his colleague and our other friend, Svenja Svetlova, a, uh, a senior research fellow at the Institute for the third collaboration between IPS and our vaunted Kennan Institute. The U.S.-Israel Working Group on Russia in the Middle East does exactly what its name indicates. Over the next two days, experts from both of our institutions will have a series of meetings that examine Russia's role in the Middle East and especially the future of Syria. The group has already released one joint study that you should all read if you haven't, uh, entitled, quote, Coping with the Russia Challenge in the Middle East, U.S.-Israeli Perspectives and Opportunities for Cooperation. For now, we look forward to hearing Amos and Svenia's uh, take on the rapidly shifting balance of power in the Middle East from the consequences of the Ar Iranian General uh, Qasem Soleimani's death uh, to Russia's weapons sales to Turkey and Iran, to President Putin's surprise visit to Syria earlier this month. Matt Rajansky, the able director of our Kennan Institute, let me say that again, the very able director of our Kennan Institute, will moderate a discussion with our speakers. And so, Matt, over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jane. Uh, usually when people describe me in four-letter words, it's not able, but... Um, <laughs> I really, I really appreciate your opening this event, uh, Jane, and, and thank you for uh, introducing our very, very distinguished panel. Um, just uh, one reminder, uh, we have an event this Friday at 10 o'clock uh, called Ethnic Interest Group Influence on U.S. Foreign Policy, the Armenian, Ukrainian, and Baltic experiences, quite an unusual cross-comparison uh, for a topic that is often informally uh, compared. This will be done by scholars who've actually uh, done field research on the issue. Um, the context of today is, of course, not only uh, the news cycle in which we have zero 
hand whatsoever, as I'm sure you can imagine. It is a unique opportunity to hear these two distinguished Israeli perspectives, uh, but it really is the ongoing challenge, uh, some might say uh, mystery, to put it in Churchillian terms, of Russia in the Middle East. What is Russia up to? Uh, what motivates Russia, and uh, our working group uh, with our colleagues from IDC, to whom we're very grateful uh, for continuing this collaboration, uh, has, I think, put together some unusual insights, and uh, Amos and Ksenia will give you some uh, sense of that, and I think we'll have plenty of time for discussion. We're going to go until uh, 5.30. Um, what I want to lay out, just, just to open uh, the bidding here uh, before I turn uh, to our two speakers, uh, is a couple of high points or low points, depending on how you look at it, of the last several months. Uh, it's not only the killing of uh, Soleimani, uh, which has triggered a reshaping of power alignments uh, and really uh, set up a series of potentially zero-sum challenges for actors throughout the region, um, but it's uh, the significant uptick of Russian involvement across the board, whether it's weapon sales uh, to Turkey, a NATO ally, to Iran, uh, its traditional uh, military partner, uh, and certainly its partner in Syria, uh, the ongoing uh, civilian nuclear reactor uh, plan vis-a-vis -vis Egypt, uh, Putin's own surprise visit to Syria, and then, of course, uh, Putin's speech in Jerusalem and the Putin-Netanyahu relationship and all of the optics, really, uh, around Russia and Israel, which I think we'll hear quite a bit more about, um, including, I think, the off-sighted but perhaps uh, misunderstood phenomenon of Russian Israelis, uh, something that is cited uh, by many observers uh, in almost every article about Israel and Russia in a very superficial way. I think we'll get a much deeper consideration of that. So those are some data points to kind of get your juices percolating about why uh, Israelis and Americans uh, might want to talk about Russia uh, beyond the obvious, uh, which is Russia's military role in Syria. So let me turn now to our speakers who've already been ably introduced by Jane. Um, who'd like to begin? Amos, shall we start with you and then go to You are the boss here. Please. Beside uh, Jane. <laughs> <coughs> I know the circumstances here. <laughs> the floor is yours, Amos. Okay. First of all, I would like to thank Jane because... Uh, I call her Her Excellency because she reminds me Queen. Since I know her, it's a matter of decades. Combination of uh, wisdom and many qualities that uh, always uh, leaving me with great impressions. So thank you. If you can repeat it in my funeral, the warm words, I'll be very glad. <laughs> um, so look. I would like to share with you, there are many images here I, I'm hearing all the time about Israeli-Russian <laughs> relationship. I'm not talking on behalf of the government. I don't know even what uh, Ksenia will say in spite of the fact that we are working together. But I would like to share with you, we do have only one real ally, that's United States of America. Uh, Jen represented it very well as a chairman of the intelligence committee that is among uh, the, the close to me at least. But we are covering so many areas of cooperation. If I summarize all of them, for Israel, not for the United States, the U.S.-Israel uh, cooperation and friendship is considered in Israel as national's major pillar in our national security. I cannot imagine our national security without U.S., period. Others are a matter of definition. With Russia, Russia is not uh, 
ally of Israel. We don't have against image any cooperation with Russia, technological intelligence, because if we do have it, it's very dangerous to our national security. You, you never know uh, to whom they will give the information. And we are, <coughs> even not officially, uh, for example, UAVs. Uh, United States is leading in this area in the world, and we are leading. If we share technology with, um, let's say, some partners that are not exactly the best partners, we might endanger our national security and United States national security. We are not going to do it. We are not doing it. Intelligence is a very sensitive issue. It's very easy to endanger your capabilities if you cooperate not with the right partners. I don't want to say with the wrong partners. So we need to, co we to be cautious. We do have with Russia, and I'm adopting American term, deconfliction. Deconfliction is totally different for cooperation. It's American term. It characterizes the unique uh, military dialogues between U.S. and, and uh, Russia. That is very essential. Is there any illusion here? I'm not sure. Now, unfortunately, our main enemy is Iran. And Iran is determined to exterminate Israel. It's true. And they are translating this vision and they are implementing it in two areas. The nuclear bombs that they are determined to develop. Since the JCPOA was canceled by United States, they are again on the track to develop it. And the regional dimension is to use the failed states like Lebanon, so-called. There is no state like Lebanon. It's called Lebanon, member of UN. Syria, another humanitarian failed state. Bashar Assad that used to marry. He is a doctor of eyes. He takes your eyes without any procedures, very quickly. Poisoning you with chemical weapons and so on. And Iraq. So the Iranians are using taking this opportunity and developing very impressive capabilities against Israel. Mm -hmm. To hit who? The population in Israel. Israel against the past is determined to prevent it, and the Iranians are determined to do it. So we are on collision course. Allegedly, according to New York Times and other newspapers, we do have uh, very impressive uh, operational activities. Uh, unfortunately, the Russians have deployed the best weapons that can uh, cause us trouble. S-400, for example. Now, the Russians officially are against our <coughs> activities, but unofficially they are tolerating it because the Russians are determined to have Syria as protectorate of Russia in the future under Bashar Assad, Dr. Bashar Assad, the president, so-called president of Syria. I respect his title. You know. He's a real doctor. By the way, he was uh, born in 9-11. That uh, embodies exactly who is he. He's cutting cakes in 9-11. Now, to the point, we need free hand. And against the past, we cannot get it from the United States because uh, they are not talking with, this, with the Russians the way we need. So we need to do it ourselves. So we, we do have areas of deconfliction in order to avoid killing or hurting or damaging Russian soldiers or property. 
and to have the free hand that we need it so much. We are determined to prevent, to prevent from Iran the capabilities to hit us dramatically, let's say in five years. So altogether, what does it mean? It means we need coordination with them uh, under the title of deconfliction. And again, I'm adapting the American term. It, it, it's done in two levels. Putin and our prime minister, because Putin is Russia in a way. And uh, our prime minister is a dominant uh, person or leader in Israel. And strategically, they can solve many problems. And on the practical, area, it's between the armies, the, the Russian army and the Israeli army. It's not cooperation, it's coordination, it's totally different. In order to avoid unnecessary, uh, we don't need war with Russia, for example. I'm not sure, I hope all Israelis understand it, but if not, I would like to clarify it. We, know, we don't need clashes with them. We need free hand while we are enjoying unofficial tolerance to our operations. By the way, the Russians are excellent in this issue. Armenia and Azerbaijan, Turkey and Kurds, Iran and Israel, and so on and so on. So that's the situation. All the images that we are cooperating and we are undermining American interest is not true. The American intelligence is too powerful to understand exactly what we are doing or what we are not doing and I hope we will never do anything against the U.S. Uh, and I haven't heard real complaints. I'm not talking about U.S. I'm talking about official complaints. I think we, are, we need to be transparent with the United States, what we are doing with them. I think we are. And if we are not, uh, we are stupid. And I think we are not. Uh, very simple. So that's the picture, briefly. Um, Ksenia, you know, in addition to your career as an elected official, you've been a journalist for many years, and I think it would be very helpful if you could fill us in uh, from your knowledge of the Israeli electorate, but also Israelis just as people, as Israelis as people who watch the news, who process what's going on in the world, and then who have their own unique personal histories, some of which, as we often hear, a million more uh, or more are have origins in the former Soviet Union, are Russian speakers, etc. Give us a sense of how Israelis see Russia, on the whole, not just the leadership, not just the government, as almost said. And then in particular, if you can give us a sense of this famous one million plus, and are there, is there a particular view from them uh, of Russia, or is it just like the same as the Israeli population? Okay, thank you so much for that. Good evening, everybody. Jane is from one uh, recovering politician to another recovering politician. <laughs> um, um, well, um, I saw many reports uh, recently about the so-called uh, Russian world presence and Russian world's influence in uh, in Israel, and uh, uh, we of course recognize the con the concept of the so-called Russian world, uh, meaning that in Moscow they probably uh, would like to see all of the people who once lived in the former Soviet uh, Union or the uh, FSU countries uh, as part of their zone of influence. Whether we are talking about you know, possibly elections, whether we are talking about support uh, of uh, cultural initiatives, protection of minorities, you know, and so on and so on. Uh, in Israel, the situation is unique uh, because, first of all, if we are talking about the so-called one million, it's now less than one million for various reasons, but uh, let's talk that approximately, yes, uh, uh, pro approximately 700,000 uh, people mm. who descended in the former Soviet Union. 
then uh, the first fact that we have to acknowledge is that the majority of them are not coming from Russia. Yes, this is, uh, for me, it uh, became quite obvious that uh, the Israelis think that everybody who immigrated from former Soviet Union are Russians because, uh, you know, I, in the first time of my life, when I either made immigration from uh, Moscow with my family, I used to be a Jew and a Soviet citizen. And uh, in Israel, suddenly I became a Russian. But so also <laughs> Ukrainians and Belarusians and Moldavians and everybody became Russian. Okay, so you have to, you have to first of all, make the distinction. Mm-hmm. Now, how important it is. Yes, it's maybe not that important because people, especially younger people, do not have this uh, emotional uh, connection with their country of origin so much. Uh, but it does become important when we are talking about um, pledge of uh, some kind of loyalty or affiliation with Putin's Russia. So um, last year, during the first uh, first uh, uh, round of uh, Israel uh, ele- election, I don't know how many will we have. It's a mystery. Uh, <laughs> we are now <laughs> heading to our third one, but uh, maybe there will be more. We don't know. It's a democracy after all. Uh, so uh, 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 there used to be a huge campaign that was dedicated to glorify, of course, the position of the prime minister. And uh, uh, in Tel Aviv, on one of the tall buildings, there was this uh, ads uh, uh, depicting uh, Netanyahu with uh, Donald Trump, with Narendra Modi, and with Vladimir Putin. It was called the Different League. So the Different League, it wasn't, it was, uh, because if somebody, especially, especially specifically in the PR team management of uh, Netanyahu, thought that they will be able to draw the votes from the camp of Avigdor Lieberman and to bring them to the Likud through this ad. Uh, so then I think uh, all of these guys are now today either fired or had to eat their head because they didn't get one vote. They didn't get one vote of this. The ad was so controversial that uh, the uh, PR team of the Likud uh, had to actually explain themselves and to say that it was not the glorification of Putin, of Putin-Russia, or whatever it represents today, but it was part of the larger team of him being an influential guy in many spheres. And uh, yes, Putin is one of the influential powers, especially in our part of the region. So this is what it was. Uh, now jumping to the event that we witnessed uh, in Jerusalem uh, with the Global Shoah Forum and uh, the visit uh, that was basically uh, organized around uh, one major star. Uh, I could, you know, maybe even a little bit bluntly, but say that it was not so much uh, an Israeli event. It was more a Russian event than Israeli event. And yes, Putin was the guest of honor. It was built around him by his team and by the Russian funding, uh, primarily by the Jewish uh, European uh, Congress. Um, it, uh, the uh, Israelis of uh, former Soviet Union, Russian descent, were not oblivious to this fact. It was all published. It was highly discussed. And to say that there was there some unity among you know, this so-called Russian million, nothing can be further away from the truth frankly speaking. Yes, uh, there were many critical articles uh, and uh, um, the division was along the lines of, okay, we need, because we now found, we found four years ago that we became neighbors of Russia. So we do need to cooperate with Russia because it's on our northern border. Yes, so this is something that we uh, pay tribute for. We have to cooperate. We have to uh, deconflict, as Amos said. And between another camp who said, no matter what, we should not uh, cooperate with the Russian narrative, you know, as you know, Russia is being a defender, the sole defender basically today of the Jews, 
of the Christians in the Middle East and of any other minority, yes, uh, whether it's in the Middle East or uh, in different areas. Okay, so this I think can give you an, um, an understanding, further understanding of um, you know how um, you know not uh, uh, homogenic uh, the view inside this community. In, in fact, it's not a community at all. There are many different communities, yes, that are all engulfed in this. Uh, so-called Russian Israelis, yes? Uh, I just have to remind you that uh, during the uh, fateful events in Crimea, there were demonstrations uh, for a few months uh, that were performed by the uh, Israelis of Ukrainian origin uh, next to Russian uh, embassy, okay? Uh, and we also know that uh, Israel has an official position on uh, Ukraine and on Crimea that is more in, uh, in tune with the United States. Uh, so uh, um, I don't know how successful is this concept of the Russian world vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, you know, Russian-speaking Israelis. Let's refer to them in this way. Uh, and, um, you know, just to put the, you know, bottom line over to, to it, um, uh, the divisions are growing. The divisions are growing uh, and the more complications there are with uh, the new uh, legislation that is happening in uh, Russia vis-a-vis -vis the LGBT. Younger Israelis of the Russian descent are more Israelis than Russians. You know, I think this is without doubt. They are 100% Israelis, yes? And uh, they, uh, the issues that are important to every, everybody in Israel, I think it's about 80%, you know, LGBT, uh, human rights, and so on. They're also important for those who were born in Russia or they are descendants of the Russian Jews. So this is, I think, uh, yeah, portrays these things. Um, Amos, you've often, uh remarked, uh, and especially more so in, in, in recent times, I won't preview your reaction to today's uh, peace plan um, proposal, but you, you've remarked about the general kind of decline of uh, American power engagement, et cetera, across the region and how this affects Israel's need to have this deconfliction channel with Russia or other uh, Israeli-led efforts. I wonder if you think that the killing of Soleimani, this so-called uh, sort of deterrent effect or an attempt to establish uh, deterrence vis-a-vis -vis Iran. Do you think it changes the calculus or the same? I've served uh, decades in our armed forces and intelligence. There are some cases that unique terrorists, it's better for the countries that are suffering from them that they will retire sooner than they expected. <laughs> Even President Obama, that he, his uh, you know, attitude is well known. He used uh, UAVs and he got rid of uh, Bin Laden and somebody that is known, Awlaki. Awlaki is American citizen. His hobby was to explode uh, commercial planes. That's not so pleasant if you are in the plane. And his plan was to explode more and more. So there were two options in front of him, to summon him to investigation from Yemen in the office of the FBI in Manhattan, for example. That could cost 10 commercial planes at least, or to get rid of him. And he got rid of him. Who is Qasem Soleimani? Qasem Soleimani is architect of the perception of terror, violence, Persian Empire, exterminating Israel, using the failed state, as I've mentioned, using Yemen and other failed states in order to destabilize Saudi Arabia, all in one person. And that person uh, retired. Again, I'm not sure which strategic considerations were behind 
his uh, targeted killing, let's call it. Maybe President uh, Trump got descriptions that uh, he, he suffered from hubris, severe hubris, this Qasem Soleimani. You know, in intelligence, you fall in love with your enemies because you invest so much in understanding them. So personally, I'm sorry that he disappeared because uh, we cannot make our living without the target. <laughs> However, it's best for the world that he disappeared. I think that um, maybe President Trump got um, intel pictures that he was about to set fire on the American embassy. American embassy caused the collapse of one of the reasons, of President Carter, and in a way prevented uh, Clinton. For him, it was the, sec the third time that he would be under fire if the American embassy was destroyed by terrorists that sponsored by Iran. So he said, who is behind it? You mean in, in Iraq? Yeah, in Iraq. So who is behind it? Son of the bitch? Kill him. So simple. There are strategic considerations. The Iranians, it seems to me, are deterred by the Americans because the, really, the real power they are afraid of is the United States. And they are right, by the way. If uh, any president gives order or orders the American Air Force to destroy Iran, they will be destroyed. And I think I know something about the, the power of this Air Force. However, <coughs> uh, they are deterred, but they will take their revenge. For example, in Iraq. They will do their best that the uh, United States will leave Iraq. Now, it's not secret that if they press too, too much, maybe the president will say, they, they can go to hell, I'm going to pull back my soldiers, or the American soldiers. It's not so easy, because Iran, unlike the past, they cannot easily kill marine soldiers. I'm talking about Lebanon. They cannot kill uh, senior guys like Mr. Ames, that was very senior guy in the CIA, Colonel Higgins in DIA, and so on and so on. They, because the president might order to destroy Iran as revenge. He threatens to do it. So they are limited. Uh, I think uh, I'm not objective, uh, I mean, based on my experience, there are some key figures that is better for the free world that they will disappear. He is a classic example. That's why I'm supporting it at the end of the day. He was supposed to die a long time ago, but uh, he enjoyed, I mean, he, he was so arrogant. He imagined that nobody would dare to touch him. He was right until he was hit by the drone. So if you ask me what does it mean, it means a lot. It's good news, generally speaking. Not because I want to take revenge of him. In this job of intelligence, never, never be emotional. I mean, all of us are human beings, but be objective and professional. Professional judgment leads me to the conclusion that uh, it's about time. And I think, you know, there is a question. Everybody has alternative or dispensable or indispensable. Everybody thinks he is indispensable. However, it's not true. There are some qualitative persons that don't have the, the, uh, the qualitative alternative. The classic example is Soleimani. So you've suggested that there is a change in Iran's perception of what the United States is willing to do. Yeah, but Does on the other hand, from our perspective, U.S. policy 
I mean, about our unique relationship with U.S., I've mentioned it's a major pillar in our national security. But it's not secret that the United States, if it depends on the president, he, he is not considering the Middle East as the main issue. Uh, how the Secretary of Defense said about the budget of the Pentagon, we do have three challenges. The first is China, the second is China, and the third is China. China. He hasn't mentioned Iran or even Russia. And I do understand the global consideration. <coughs> but if United States leaves Syria, for example, leaves vacuum there, it's very significant. There is no vacuum in strategy. The vacuum is filled by whoever. In this case, hostile Iran. Uh, and there, and uh, in uh, Saudi Arabia, the uh, dramatic attack of Iran on the sensitive strategic uh, place uh, was described as a local issue. What does it mean local issue? It's not a municipality interest. It's a strategic interest. And if they hit better, it could um, have significant results without details. And uh, if there is no reaction or it's not clear that you need to pay for the terrorists, you pay price, it means there is vacuum and in, in the image of weakness. For example, Turkey was allowed to attack the Kurds that are the allies of the United States. Not only of the United States, they are allies of others. However, they contributed to defeat ISIS, that this is the worst enemy used to be. So altogether, this image of uh, weakness, leaving the Middle East, Middle East is marginal area, and so on, is very dangerous because it undermines the sense of trust in the American umbrella. And so I do believe in Pax Americana. This is very important for stability of this area. I do think <laughs> this is the last sentence. United States cannot leave the Middle East because the Middle East will chase United States until Times Square to carry out biological, non-conventional, chemical act of terror in Times Square. It's not a matter of decision. It's, not, it's only a matter of capability. So again, it sounds like you believe the attack, the, the, the strike on Soleimani, has gone some way towards uh, filling the vacuum or at least signaling to the Iranians that there are limits on no, what they can get enough. away with. Understood. The question would be then from the Russian perspective. The Russians have filled a vacuum themselves. They have enjoyed the freedom to come into the Middle East again in a big way. Do you think the strike, it may not be enough, but do you think the momentum of the latest U.S. move changes the perception on the part of the Russians? No. Not at all. It's not necessary. I mean, the moment you are dead, I would like to share with you a secret, you are dead. I mean, that's it. Okay. I mean, he, Soleimani belongs to the past. Why it needs to change the policy of Russia? They are looking around. He was their, their principal interlocutor, as far as I understand. Uh, he was appreciated as a live person. The moment he is dead, even in Russia, you are not appreciated so much after <laughs> you are retired. <laughs> so uh, they are so cynical, I mean. He retired. Uh, maybe professionally they appreciate the performance. It's not changing the policy in Syria or Libya or wherever they can do. I mean, the Russians are also facing difficulties. It's not easy to penetrate to Gulf states, even to Egypt. They do have achievements, uh, but they will not change their policy. 
Ksenia, I want to let you comment on this. I have also another question for you about uh, diplomacy with some of the other countries of Eastern Europe. So do you want to comment on this first? Go ahead. Well, when we are talking about Russia and Iran and Syria, then we have to understand that uh, even though Moscow now uh, uses Iran, it's a very, a very useful instrument because they are putting boots on the ground, what is Russia is not doing. Okay, But uh, eventually, uh, Russia would want to mold Syria in its own way and preferably without too much Iranian influence in the region. So if Iranian guy, number one, who managed the whole thing, is no longer there, somebody is ought to send some flowers yes, mm-hmm. to the guys who did it. Yes, so it's again very cynically, but mm. you know, that's, that's the way it is. Uh, and uh, the void, if there will be a void, there might be, uh, you know, at least for, for a time being, uh, for the successor, and it's not necessarily will be the guy, the Kani, who uh, officially became a successor. It will take time to re- to replace Soleimani. He's not irreplaceable, yes, but definitely there will be some time needed uh, to uh, to be to make somebody else to to make the uh, success uh, that uh, uh, Soleimani enjoyed. For Russians, it's uh, the golden time, you know, so they can achieve uh, whatever they wanted to achieve before, and were restrained by his presence and by his influence yes mm-hmm. it's not the end of Iranian uh, presence of course in Syria we are not uh, you know uh, uh, naive uh, in this regard uh, also Russia never said that it is going to push Iranians away but they would want if it's possible maybe to cut their wings a little bit yes so it's this is something that fits their policy perfectly so in this way there is no change of Russian policy in Syria because why should it be just in the, the just the opposite to use the void uh, the void uh, if the americans are living they're using this void the iranian is dead they're using this void mm-hmm. here we are yeah i've, I've often said when i'm asked a, a very i like to say a very american question what is putin's end game in you know wherever it is syria and i always say what makes you think that there's an end game the most <laughs> foolish thing you could do is take responsibility for the long term in the short term you can be opportunistic and anything works to your advantage but let me ask you ksenia you brought up in in the context of israeli society and israeli politics the distinctions among you know russian speaking israelis um in fact, there is also an uh, international <laughs> diplomatic dimension to that, where Israel, admittedly a small country, but a, a non-trivial trading, uh, technology, uh, people-to-people partner of the countries of the former Soviet Union and also the countries of Eastern Europe, for example, Poland, for example, Ukraine. Uh, Israel is faced with, in some respects, uh, the, the same kinds of zero-sum dilemmas that the United States or that Western European countries have vis-a-vis two, you know, diametrically opposed actors. And a very clear illustration of this, it seems to me, was the situation of President Duda. You described, of, of Poland, that is. You described uh, this, this Russian event that took place in Jerusalem from which he was essentially uninvited. For Israeli diplomacy, can you talk a little bit about this dilemma of managing a relationship with Moscow when Moscow is setting up, and by the way, other countries are sort of happily joining them in zero-sum dilemmas, which Israel, in, in a way, can afford less than, than the United States to play into those zero-sum traps. So first of all, I'll uh, quote from the famous uh, Russian proverb, uh, uh, East is a subtle matter. Vostok uh, So uh, in this regard, uh, you know, Russians believe that they understand the East much better than everybody else, specifically the Americans, yes? Uh, and they are not in a hurry. They are not in a hurry to achieve all of their goals tomorrow because it's a long-term game. 
Uh, why should they be in a hurry? You know, I remember the interview that I made with for Jerusalem Post uh, with uh, Primakov. It was in 2006. And by then, he already basically outlined the strategy of modern Russia in the Middle East in 2006. Mm. You know, nine, nine years before, you know, intervention in Syria. Mm-hmm. And in 2006, 2006, you could, you know, say that the uh, Russian presence in the uh, Middle East, uh, of course, it, you know, it was, you know, very uh, uh, medium-sized, yes, but yeah, you know, that was the outlook that was quite clear, yes, that uh, uh, the absence of Russia in the Middle Eastern arena is uh, not a rule, it's exception of the rule. Uh, but if you're looking at the history of Russia, you know, the you know the Tsar period, Soviet Union, and modern Russia, then of course, you know, you understand that they're here to stay. So uh, for Israel, as a country that, yes, has to maneuver, Uh, in this uh, not very uh, uh, easy situation. Uh, it's a given, you know, we, uh, uh, in the Arabic, the Arabic proverb says that uh, you usually have to choose your neighbors before you choose your house. But here we do not choose our neighbors, never. Uh, they are cho- pe- neighbors are, you know, just setting the uh, environment and uh, we have to work in this environment. Yes, so Israel is a small state. Uh, it's a state that um, lives in the condition of the current war. Uh, it's uh, today, even if it's... Uh, perhaps the most quieted period that we enjoy in the last few years, it doesn't mean that the threats on our security are less than before, perhaps even more so. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, in this regard, uh, we are doing whatever we can, you know, in, uh, uh, vis-a-vis Russia, to have the successful uh, cooperation, limited, but yes, yes, the, you can call it the deconfliction, but uh, uh, we are doing whatever we need uh, to achieve our goals uh, in Syria uh, and beyond Syria, uh, to have the possibility to harm those who want to harm us before they do it. Uh, if we are talking about the diplomacy, you know, to, uh, about other countries, well, you know, I'm coming from the opposition politically. Yes, uh, so uh, there are many points in which, you know, I do not agree uh, with uh, uh, the current uh, foreign policy of uh, our country. Uh, and I do believe that it could be perhaps more nuanced, certainly more balanced that we are having right now. Uh, and uh, vis-a-vis Russia specifically vis-a-vis, vis-a-vis uh, you know all of this uh, controversy because on one hand our Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs uh, makes uh, some uh, rather uh, bold statements uh, against uh, Poland and uh, causes a major diplomatic rift uh, on the other hand he is talking to the Russian uh, newspaper Commerant and there he says that Russia is our strategic partner mm-hmm. when did this happen? You know, so uh, uh, and what does it mean exactly? Yes. Yeah? So uh, and is Russia aware uh, of its, you know, being our strategic partner? If, and if so, then why does it vote against us in all of the UN bodies? Why doesn't it recognize as Hezbollah, as Hamas, as terrorist organizations? And I have a list of many other questions, you know, in this regard. Uh, saying all that, uh, there is still uh, and in diplomacy, you know, it's diplomacy, it's the art of the impossible. Uh, we do uh, have uh, to work with all of the partners uh, in Europe. Europe is our major trade partner. Uh, it's our partner for democracy, which is even more important, yes. There are uh, um, contradictions right now, uh, very difficult contradictions. The Polish do not make you know, life easier for us or for United States for this matter. Uh, but we do have to achieve some kind of compromise uh, because uh, this is what diplomacy is all about. Uh, we will have to move forward uh, also with the Russians, but also with Poles and also with Ukrainians. Uh, I would suggest you know, some uh, modifications to what we are you know, having today. Uh, specifically, we are talking about something as sensitive as th- perhaps the most uh, you know, sensitive Israeli topic ever, Holocaust. What can be more sensitive than that? And if you are giving the possibility 
to a private body, a foreign body, mm-hmm. yes, a Russian, in this case, body, uh, to have some kind of ownership on this memory, then I think we are in some kind of a moral crisis here. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've long said, and my colleague Isabella Taborowski has frequently written uh, about the challenges of historical memory and manipulation of uh, identity politics in Eastern Europe. It's it's an issue that we ignore, or as Americans, we're always so future-focused, we kind of relegate it to the sort of, oh, these are the problems of the past, and we do so at our peril, because there's no question that it drives a lot of the conflicts we're dealing with now in, in the European and Eurasian space. With that, I want to open the floor to questions. I hope that you have them. Um, we have two microphones in the room, so if you just raise your hand and keep it high so that I can see it, it's a little dark out there, uh, or the lights are in my eyes, and then when I call on you, uh, you'll get the microphone, introduce yourself, your affiliation if you have one, and a question that ends in a question mark, ideally in a grammatical sentence. That would be great. So I saw the gentleman right here. Yes, um, Paul London, I'm just a observer. Um, General, you, you started out saying that Iran was, you know, is has uh, Israel in the crosshairs. We were just tourists in Iran in March with a group of about 16 people. And everywhere we went, people wanted to have their pictures taken with us. We were in the lobby of a big hotel in Tehran uh, the first night we were there. And they played America the Beautiful and the Star Spangled Banner on the piano under big portraits of you know, the supreme leader. So there must be big divisions in Iran. Uh, And I wonder if you would comment on that. That was a valid exception to the rule of one grammatical sentence with a question mark. Excellent question. Amos. If I I worked in the Ministry of Tourism, I would agree with you. (coughs) I mean, what does it mean, division? There is one regime is dominated by the Revolutionary Guards, by Khamenei, by vicious uh, guys that are ignoring what you are describing. With all due respect to your description, I think it's marginal in the whole picture of hostility, um, desires of uh, dominance in the Middle East, exterminating Israel, and we need to take it very seriously. We, uh, there, there are uh, feelings in Iran, they want to be part of the United States, of the West, they admire the freedom, the liberty. But where are they? When they whenever they demonstrate, they are shot immediately. Now, if you can recommend or find a way to encourage the demonstrators, like it happened during uh, Khomeini and uh, that enjoy support of France or Carter at the time, I don't see it. I don't see any real threat to the Iranian regime. I mean, I'm not saying that there are no threats, but significantly, if you ask me whether there is significant threat to the stability of this terrible regime, I don't see it. And who is supporting the demonstrators? Who is supporting the ones who want better life under American or Western uh, standards? So we need to be impressed by the wishes, by the dreams, by the implementation of the dreams, about Israel, about stability of uh, of the Arab world, and not to be impressed by uh, tourists' uh, experience. Uh, 
with all due respect. Uh, and this uh, experience repeats itself in history. So based on, thanks God, I remember that I presented to our prime minister in 96 the assessment about the vicious character of the Iranian regime. The name of the prime minister in 96, previous century, was Benjamin Netanyahu. And uh, he has taken it as a real threat. And Israel has taken it as a real threat. And Israel has taken it as a real threat. And we were the first to prioritize Iran vis-a-vis uh, -vis the real nature. There were many discussions. I can elaborate it. I'm not sure we do have the time, including with the U.S. I remember myself discussing in, in very harsh ways uh, the issue of Iran. Today, there is consensus about Iran from the intelligence point of view. I'm not talking about the policy. The policy, there are differences. If you ask me, I do have a dream if I use this same, famous saying that the Iranian regime will collapse and we will enjoy again the partnership with Iran like we used to have before the revolution. Oh, United States. Is it feasible now for the next coming uh, decade at least? I don't think so. Okay, I saw, yes, right here. Uh, gentleman in the gray jacket, yeah. Hi, my name is Patrick Theros. I'm a retired American diplomat. I have a question about why Israel uh, seems to be embracing uh, Putin as the protector of all Christians in the Middle East, uh, or at least for, uh, you know, honoring him over the Holocaust and so forth. And is this in any way affected by the fact that several hundred thousand Israelis migrants from Russia are, in fact, uh, Russian Orthodox Christians? <laughs> I would like to answer it because uh, Xenia is suspected not being objective. Uh, you know, all this allegation about the Russian Jews in the pocket of Putin, it reminds me anti-Semitic propaganda. As Israelis, it is not coming from Russian origin. I can, I can share with you two observations. First of all, I cannot imagine Israel existing without the Russian Jews. They are so qualitative, uh, and their contribution to Israel is unbelievable. That's one. Secondly, they are not in the pocket of Putin. They hate him. And as Xenia has described it, there are no Russian Jews, all of them Russian Jews that are in the pocket of Putin. It's not true. It's fake news. Fake news is very popular, but the problem with fake news is not true. Uh, uh, that's not the issue. Putin is not is not popular among the Russian Jews. The Russian Jews have become more Israelis than uh, many or original Israelis. So it's all bullshit, sorry to say. And we are not dealing with Putin as a protector of the Christians. We don't care about it. We need Putin to have free hand against our real enemies. That's what we are doing. For the Christians, we do have the Vatican, we do have the Pravoslav Church, we do have others. That's not the main issue in Israel. So I would like to share with you as a diplomat that the allegations you, have, you are sharing with us are baseless. And thanks God, even the sectarian parties in Israel, the Russian sectarian parties, have disappeared. I mean, take Liberon, for example. Maybe old, old uh, Russian guys supporting its equivalent to five mandates, four mandates, Max. uh, maximum among 120. Uh, I'm very happy, and I can compare it to other uh, you know, communities of Jews, they have become Israelis quicker than others. 
Uh, we do have many of you from Ethiopia, from Russia, from Ukraine, from Belarusia, from Poland, from Germany. Um, they, are, they are, have become much weaker Israelis than Israelis themselves. So uh, we are not embracing Putin, at least in the establishment I'm coming from. There is no illusion about him. Um, unlike uh, his predecessors, at least we are lucky we do have the Russian Jews. But if you, you, know to under, you need to understand, if it was dependent on Putin, he would never release any Jews, besides some agents of FSB, SVR, and GRU. Besides that, he would not release. He says so. You, you why, we need to, why we need to give up the ones... You're referring the, to in the 1970s and 80s. Just yes, yes, of course, of course. Now, if he had been... We are not in the pocket of Putin. Nobody thinks we are in the pocket of Putin. Uh, but we need Putin, and there is no illusion. He's not our strategic partner. He will never be. He's strategic partner of Iran, not Israel. He's strategic partner of Syria not Israel. Now, there, is a, there are circumstances that he wants Iran not to be too powerful. And if it's possible to use the Israeli budget, American aircrafts, to fulfill his wishes, why not? And we need him to have free hand. Who will help us if they will uh, shoot down with S-400 uh, Israeli aircrafts? Americans? No, not today. So we are alone. We need to do what we need to do. That's it. Um, Sanya, I want to go to you, but I also want to note uh, while I can that uh, for those who are interested in this question of Russian Israelis, which Sanya will continue to address, I think there is also a publication by my colleague Isabella Tabarovsky on the table outside, which includes some interesting statistics that I think su support what you've said. Basically, they, they're really voting very similarly to other Israelis, that there's not this mythology. Yeah. Um, actually, um, this debate of the Jewishness of uh, the repatriants, uh, immigrants from former Soviet Union, was very much right now at the center of attention in Israel. Uh, but of course, uh, there is no, absolutely no truth in uh, some allegations uh, that some, you know, half, uh, third, you know, one fifth uh, of those who emigrated from uh, FSU, from former Soviet Union, uh, they are Christians. Okay, some of them are not galactically recognized as Jews, okay? So, uh, but coming from the atheist country, believe me, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes, uh, to imagine, you know, like, you know, huge uh, amount of uh, immigrants who are suddenly, you know, out of the blue, they are uh, uh, observing uh, Christians or observing Jews, you know, nothing, nothing of the kind. There is a real struggle uh, in Israel about the character of the country, about the recognition of these people, of perhaps helping them to, you know, opening uh, ways for them to uh, become uh, Jews who are recognized by the establishment. Uh, but uh, in every sense of the way, culturally, mentally, you know, uh, they are Israeli Jews. There is no other, no other way to depict it. And of course, yes, I would say that uh, Putin is not, you know, their favorite guy by any means. Uh, there, there are, of course, some people who also go to the elections, they have Russian passports, and they, they, they even vote for him, you know, for more or less the same percentage as they vote for him for any country. But we are talking about smallest minority, yes? We are talking about those who are edge eligible to vote for Putin. That, you know, we are talking a few hundred, few, uh, few dozen thousands, you know, at, at best. Uh, so this is first. Uh, as for the uh, uh, question of Christians, I do not think that Israel gives any recognition uh, for Russian role as a protector of Christians. 
sense. But this is definitely the narrative that it's trying to promote. You should look at what is happening at Syria and Lebanon. Yes, uh, of course, the, you know, all of this talk about the restoration of the churches, of the historical sites, of course, but specifically churches. Yes, Ma'alula and others. You should look at Lebanon, when, where you have now at the centers of Christian communities, eight cultural centers, eight cultural centers in this small country of Lebanon. Why so? Yes. So the only reason for that is to engage with the local Christian uh, communities. Uh, and again, you know, to try and uh, to have this poster of, you know, the defender of the minorities in the Middle East. OK, so uh, uh, this is something that, again, this doesn't relate so much uh, to uh, Israel. But uh, there is some relation, of course, because we know now that uh, the price uh, part of the price that Israel will be playing for, for the release of its citizen that was jailed uh, in Russia for seven and a half years, you know, for very minor uh, crime, if at all. Uh, it's, of course, it's the Christian uh, property, yes, the Alexander Court uh, in the old city, which is very strategic, very important. And uh, yes, it will give uh, Russia now the, uh, you know, footing in the most strategic place in the world, probably, yes. And yes, a pl more place for the Russian church uh, in the, all of this world of uh, conflicting world of uh, churches uh, that are fighting against each other in the, you know, in the old city. So extra power, definitely, yes. Uh, does it mean that Israel is... Uh, you know, embracing and recognizing, you know, this role? No, not necessarily, not at all. Okay, uh, let's go here to the lady with the scarf. You guys have to raise your hands a little higher than this because it's quite dark out there. Thank you. Jihan uh, al journalist. Uh, I want to ask uh, General Amos uh, Gilad about the peace plan. Uh, do you think uh, the peace plan could succeed uh, in spite of the absence of Palestinians? No. <laughs> uh, even in modern times, in order to get married, you need the uh, couples. <laughs> Maybe in the future, the couples will be between human being and robot. <laughs> but still couples. If we don't have couple to get married, uh, there is no chance it will work. And especially for divorce, you need a couple. <laughs> <laughs> That's expertise I don't have. Um, I'm very worried because we do have unbelievable, unique security, defense, intelligence cooperation with the Arab countries. What we don't have is normalization. Why normalization is very important? Because normalization is like three with one root or many roots. Now, the moment... Uh, we will be perceived as endangering Jordan, the Hashemite king of Jordan, we might lose strategic depths. With the Palestinians, at least we do, with the Palestinian Authority, we do have some kind of uh, security cooperation. It, if they get weaker and Hamas will be stronger, it will not, for the long run, I'm not talking about the short one. For the short one is a spectacular, uh, spectacular show. I'm worried because we do have miraculous relationship with the Arabs, but they are not normal relationship. Uh, the message to the public that the normal relationships are not existing will not exist. So if there is unilateral uh, um, plan or bargain, it might for the long run change the nature of Israel, the nature of our relationship with Arab countries. I think it's very risky and very challenging.
Okay. He is our prime minister. I agree with him. I mean, this is his description. You are don't ask me about descriptions. You ask me about the phenomena. The peace process, <laughs> unfortunately, is not successful along the history. I do think uh, there is a book uh, based on dialogues with me about Arafat. At that time that I was responsible, I used to describe Arafat as mass murderers and nothing would would result out of his behavior. Abu Mazen is different, not because he's Zionist. He's not, because he is against terror. At least with him, we need to talk. And uh, I'm worried about his successor. I cannot foresee real su one successor. There are many of them. So the moment uh, we are changing the basis for the future relationship between us and the Arab world, it might be very risky, dangerous, and challenging. Okay, right here, and yes, I see, I see a couple of others. Go ahead. Ariel Cohen, uh, the Atlantic Council. Um, I have a question about a country we didn't mention very much, and there is a Russian dimension to it, and that's Turkey. So on the one hand, Turkey is expanding its military, energy, and strategic connections with Russia, but on the other hand, Turks, like Russians, are steeped in centuries of practicing geopolitics, not just talking about it, and they cannot miss the fact that Russia is establishing itself along the southern periphery of Turkey, first of all in Syria, but also in Lebanon. Putting a little bit of a stick in the wheel of Mr. Erdogan's dream of neo-Ottomanism. So that's the first question. The second question, if I may, <laughs> Mr. Chairman. Exactly, because you have shared with us description. What is the question? Well, the question is how Turkey and Russia would interfere going forward, and how does that affect Israel? Uh, the, the second question, real quick. Russia, the Soviet Union, traditionally, was a big patron saint of the Palestinian movement. And Abu Mazen, that you just mentioned, had his PhD uh, in, uh, if I believe, if I remember correctly, in the Patrice Lumumba. No, in the, the in MGU. Ah, Institute mm. of and the uh, Oriental Studies Institute in Moscow, writing about the Zionist Nazi cooperation. So, how do you see going forward the future relationship between Ramallah and Gaza and Moscow? Thank you. Okay, I'll let you sneak in the two questions. Yeah, taking advantage, Ariel. <laughs> you know, Who wants uh, to tackle? Go ahead. Abu Mazen is not the first to invent fake news. <coughs> if we judge persons based on fake news, we need to disqualify all of them. That's not the issue. I would like to begin with Turkey. I really appreciate the policy of Russia to, you know, to have opponents as partners of Russia. You have Turkey and Kurds. You, uh, I mentioned it, Iran and Israel, Armenia and uh, Azerbaijan. But I'm more impressed by the decision of uh, General Sisi, President Sisi, to send to jail, uh, Egyptian jail, uh, the Muslim brothers. Can you imagine the Middle East based on alliance between the Muslim brothers in Cairo or in Egypt, the biggest Arab country, and the 
potential Ottoman Empire in, in Turkey. Since he is, he, and based on alliances between them, can you imagine the Middle East, the threat to Jordan, to Israel, to the whole Middle East? It's unbelievable, to Saudi Arabia even, with Qatar. Since he has taken his decision, I think against the illusions of Turkey, they are not so powerful as they used to dream to be. That's one. Secondly, the Turks are dangerous. I mean, they do have ambitions in Libya. They do have. Uh, they are supporting uh, Hamas. They are trying to enhance their position in Jerusalem. In Libya, I, I'm. I don't think they are so powerful as they think they are. And they are not similar to the op Ottoman Empire. Maybe Erdogan is, he looks like a sultan with uh, 1,000 rooms he has in his palace. But that's not the Ottoman Empire, with all due respect. Now, he can play with America, United States, and Russia, but he lost the F-35. Even he got the impression from Trump that he would not touch it. There is no... Coexistence, cohabitation, like you say in French, between F-35, so important plane, and S-400, that is learning the F-35 in order to cope with it. So they are losing. The economy is not so prosperous like <coughs> it used to be. I mean, Erdogan, he was saved from the coup d'etat, but he is far away from being so powerful. However, they are dangerous. The way their behavior vis-a-vis -vis Libya, the Mediterranean, the gas, the aggressive attitude towards Cyprus and uh, Greece and to Israel. But I do think that still Iran is the worst enemy, at least from Israeli point of view. They are a combination of rival, but we do have economic relationship with them. And they are not so strong. And even President Trump, uh, Trump keeps talking with them as uh, they are talking to each other as personal friends. I don't think they are more powerful than the times they used to be allies of the United States. They cannot be real allies of NATO, of Europe, and the United States. I'm talking about strategic process. That's about Iran. Uh, about Palestinian Authority and Israel. Okay, he wrote this... Uh, I'm not, I mean, I, I hate the book he wrote. Not in Patrick Lumumba, because Patrick Lumumba, uh, if you, uh, you have been uh, agent of any Russian uh, intelligence agency, you could get a uh, grade about everything you have done, or vice versa. That's not university. This is something else. That's why he didn't study there. He's not Zionist. I'm not sure he understands the Jews or Israel. I do have many doubts. I can talk about it a long time. However, he has taken a decision not to carry out acts of terror against Israel and to cooperate without insecurity, even against Hamas, that they are the real enemies of the Palestinian Authority and, of course, of Israel. I'm concerned about the outcome of the process of the bargain now. They will be weaker. And uh, I think that uh, Abu Mazen will take revenge by leaving us with successors, not successor, that need to be, will need to be much tougher in order to prove that they are relevant leaders based on lack of alternative to the peace process. That's what I'm concerned. Ksenia. 
just add very briefly that uh, although there is uh, obviously contradiction in goals between Turkey and Russia, everywhere, in Syria, in Libya, yes, they are confronting sides. But uh, Russia's primary main goal in the Middle East, one of those at least, is to draw as many countries as possible out of the U.S. sphere of influence. And they are doing not very bad, you know, in this direction. Yeah? So uh, there are uh, carrots and sticks uh, in Russian-Turkish relations. Uh, the carrots are immense. We are talking about the Turkish stream. We are talking about the S-400 uh, and uh, great uh, economic relations that they're having. Yes, but there are also sticks. Maybe. And sticks is yes. And uh, it's, you know, vis-a-vis -vis Idlib. Uh, in Libya right now, yes, so, you know, Turkey is uh, playing along so far, yes, it will may not last very long, but there, there will be some at some point clash. But for now, you know, they are doing fine. They're now, now they're, for now, they are doing okay, uh, accommodating to the needs of, uh, of each other. Uh, and this is a great success for Russia, of course, yes, to taking a country which is a NATO ally. Uh, and uh, basically having its will uh, with her. Uh, as for the Abu Mazen, I can just, you know, one sentence on that. By the way, I read his PhD. I think I'm one of the few Israelis that, because I traveled to the Institute of the Orient Studies and I took the copy. It was back in 2001. Since then, they made it secret. Okay, so uh, they didn't just give it to, it to anybody. Uh, and uh, you know what? Uh, first of all, it's 75% quotes of Lenin. Let's start with that. Uh, second of all, it's written in Russian which, as far as I know, I interviewed Abbas many times, doesn't speak Russian. So you can figure <laughs> by yourself, you know. I didn't say anything. Okay, but uh, I can also tell you that it's not really that important because if you would judge Middle Eastern leaders according to what they did or said about Israel, about Jews in the past, we would go nowhere, you know. We do not choose our neighbors. We didn't choose, uh, uh, for example, the Egyptian leader Anwar Sadat. You know what the Israeli intelligence wrote about him in the 70s when they just came to power? Uh, apparently, he became the greatest leader of this country, yes? Uh, so, and uh, he made both war and peace, you know, with us, which uh, today I think there is not one Israeli that would say that, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's not good, it's not beneficial. No, it's great for us that we are having peace with Egypt, and I hope that we'll have it for many times. Uh, so uh, whether, you know, I'm not comparing between the two men, but I'm judging Abu Mazen according to what he did. And what he did, it's for 15 years, quiet in the West Bank. Yes, there is no intifada, although there were many times some probability for that. And there was atmosphere and appetite for that. And of course, Hamas tried many times to destabilize the situation. But I'm looking at what happened since 2005. And the cooperation that we're having in security between us and between the Palestinians, yes, and it's tremendous, yes. And uh, I'm very worried that today the only move the Palestinians basically can do, I think it will be not very beneficial for them, first of all, yes. It will hurt them probably more than it will hurt us, but it's the stop, it's the halt of the security cooperation between the Palestinian and Israeli security forces. I think that they threatened with it uh, many times before. They never uh, actually uh, 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 did that. But, uh, you know, if this happened, it will hurt, definitely it will happen, the security needs of Israel. It will also hurt the Palestinians and the Palestinian autonomy. Incidentally, on the subject of Turkey, um, if you would like a temperature check on Turkey's affection for the Russian worldview, you might read the quotation last week from the foreign minister who suggested that NATO should take Georgia uh, as a member. So I, I would suggest it wasn't coordinated probably with uh, the Russian foreign ministry. So I saw Mark back there, the gentleman with the uh, orangish tie. And I'm completely colorblind also in this auditorium. So. 
But he has a tie, I can tell. <laughs> yeah, I do, actually. Thank you. Thank you very much for noticing. Uh, Mark Katz, George Mason University. I uh, want to thank you both for, for clarifying uh, how the uh, Russian-speaking population in Israel is not so fond of Vladimir Putin. But in, in your doing so sort of makes it all the more... Um, uh, perplexing to understand why it is that one Israeli in particular, Benjamin Netanyahu, seems to be so devoted to the relationship with uh, with Putin. Because obviously there doesn't seem to be much domestic demand for this. There may be even a domestic cost. And you know we've seen Netanyahu, you know, courting Putin, you know, assiduously and you know flattering him. Obviously, what happened just just recently uh, in in uh, in Israel. And I guess I guess my question is, what has Netanyahu gained from this? It doesn't seem that he has succeeded in moving Russia away from the relationship with Iran or from Hezbollah or from Hamas. Uh, and yet and yet Netanyahu courts Putin over and over and over. What what does he I often think that maybe what he really seems to gain is that uh, is the sense that it must really irritate the Iranians to be seen <laughs> him him talking with Putin all that much. But I'm just sort of wondering, you know, you 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 laid out the the the, the logic that that uh, Israel has one strategic ally in the United States. And so it makes it all the more perplexing that, that he's devoted so much time and attention to cultivating Russia without seemingly gaining very much from this. It's a great question, Mark. And, and, and if I can put even a finer additional point on it, uh, if in fact the, the, the main achievement has to do with the sort of freedom of action in Syria on the level of air defenses and so on, isn't that awfully small beer for a head of state relationship? Putin and Netanyahu? <laughs> it depends where are you. I mean, if you are in the uh, United States, it's even very marginal. If you are in Israel, it's it's huge issue. Uh, we'd like to share with you, we don't want to be attacked by powerful Iran that is building its power in Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, based on rockets, missiles that are accurate, cruise missiles in Iraq, drones, armed drones in, uh, in Syria. Uh, it's not our desire. Our desire is to prevent it. Now, what does it mean? Uh, I'm not the spokesperson of Netanyahu. Uh, however, what he's doing? Half of our relationship with Russia is this talks between us, between the leaders. The personal relationship between President Trump and Netanyahu that are also excellent Maybe there are 1% of unique cooperation, wide cooperation between us and the United States. It's covering so many areas. We don't have 1% of what we do have with the United States between Israel and Russia. So if we do have a verbal cooperation between Israel and Russia, I don't think it's so serious the way you describe it. I don't, I don't know why we are, you are bothered. Okay, we are talking, we are flattering. Whether it's true or untrue, it's not so important. What does it mean practically? Do we have unique cooperations that endangering our cooperation <coughs> with the U.S., our national security? Uh, we don't have it. But we do have free hand. It's not only free hand. I think the Russians, uh, they are less hostile. They can be hostile in many areas. We need, and we are in some ways, some way we are alone in the Middle East. We need their tolerance. I'm repeating myself. I'm sorry, but uh, I need to share you the answer. If you are impressed only by rhetoric, personally, I can live with it. 
Practical areas of cooperation don't exist. Again, with the United States, our cooperation is so wide, so deep, so qualitative, that even the rhetoric is not covering even 1%. That's what counts from Israeli point of view. And it's not so marginal the way you describe it. It's absolutely is not true. Uh, the Iranian threat is real one, uh, <coughs> very severe one, and we need to cope with it before they attack us one day. But if I may, I mean, I think, I think what Mark is getting at is if the relationship with Russia is in fact so limited, uh, including in terms of what Russia is, is giving in its giving willingness it? to constrain Iran in the region, then what actually is That's your getting judgment, not my judgment. I'm clarifying your judgment again. again. What you are describing as marginal is a major one. Can you imagine Israeli Air Force, it's our pilots, Israeli pilots, not uh, other pilots, attacking Syria, Iranian sites, and then we need to cope with uh, S-400 or something like that. For us, it's not marginal, it's a major issue. We need to save our pilots. We are responsible mm -hmm. for them. We need to be sure that they are successful. This cooperation, not cooperation, coordination or deconfliction arrangements with Russia are major issue. But they are not, they are narrow. I mean, they are not covering wide areas like we do have with the United States. It's a bottleneck issue. It's, a, it's, it's important by itself. So if we need to pay a tribute to, uh, to flatter or the way you describe it, I'm not sure it's true, but let's assume it's true. Okay, there is no custom on words. Uh, if this is a price, we need to pay. I'll just like to remind you that uh, right now we have uh, both Syria and both Lebanese coast covered by the Russian S-300. So this is a fact of life. No, no, it is S-400 covering all Israel, including the most sensitive yeah. areas. They can shoot down yep. any place they want inside Israel. We are talking about Lebanon, then you can imagine, yes, that uh, in Israel uh, there is not a question if there will be a war with Hezbollah in Lebanon, but there is a question when it will be. So for Israel, the freedom of operation, it's equal to our survival. So it's not a, mi it's not a minor issue at all. I would not say that, you know, this is something that it's something small that they're giving us. Second thing, that uh, the relations with Russia also, it's a work in process. And since 2015, first of all, I think that some of the Israeli officials, I uh, also knew because I was serving at the Knesset at the time and I had the uh, discussions with them, some of them truly believed, you know, this is something that was told to me, that uh, they would be able to use Russia uh, as uh, an instrument to push Iranians away from our borders. And yes, they were discouraged and they in the end of the day found out that it's not true. But there were agreements signed. I just remind you that there was agreement between Israel and Jordan, yes, and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, experts didn't have high hopes from the beginning, yes, but there was some agreement signed that Russia was part of it, it was supporting it, and uh, there was this sign, some kind of hope that maybe it will happen, yes. So some of us were more skeptical, you know, than the others, but that's another thing, you know. So th this is something that's a working process. And there is a third thing, which is a public dimension, yes? So there is a big difference between support of Putin and between the realization of the strength of Putin, of Putin's Russia. So uh, in the eyes of many Israelis, it's uh, 
per se not of Russian origin. Because in the Russian community, there is, uh, as I told you, yes, there are many uh, points of view and there is a huge debate. But actually, for those who were not born in Russia at all, yes, Putin is a strong leader. He is a strong leader who has direct influence on our life here in Israel, yes. And um, although I don't think that, again, the majority of Israelis have any illusion, especially when, you know, you have, this is a minor incident, but this is very telling, you know, when you have this uh, uh, Israeli citizen is basically t- taking hostage, <laughs> yes, and uh, being the jailed. young woman who was arrested yes. for a small amount of marijuana yes. in her bag. And jailed for, Moscow. yes, and jailed for seven and a half years uh, in, the, in the Israeli jail. Uh, and uh, uh, yes, so in the, of course, in the Russian jail. So in that moment, at that moment, you had the sharp drop of about 45% in the uh, air purchasing tickets uh, of, of, you know, flights through Russia. It was very popular. It was very cheap. Israelis were flying into the uh, Far East, you know, from Moscow. And then they suddenly, they, they, they stopped because they understand that, well, maybe it's not that simple, you know. So, but there's, there are many d- dimensions to these relations, yes. And, but the majority, I think, understands very well, you know, what, you know, Amos explained so, uh, you know, precisely that uh, we are here in the position of dependence. Yes, you know, it's not a, it was not our choice, but we found itself in this situation and we are dealing with everyday threat that is coming from Iran in Syria and also in Iraq. So to, be, to be crystal clear, though, on the Israel-Russia-Iran dimension, Russia is not doing anything other than permitting Israel to operate against Iran. The the early hopes of those who said that Russia would push back against Iran, in your view, completely misplaced. That has not been true. They were disappointed. They did not uh, voice it out loud, you know, that, well, you know, we were pros- promised A and, uh, you know, they did not deliver uh, because it's very sensitive. It's, you know, a diplomatic issue. Uh, but no, we do not see, uh, you know, we also hear from the Russian officials that they're saying, they're explaining that they certainly will not play this instrument of, you know, pushing Iran away. They are not here to take this, you know, job uh, on behalf of Israelis or on behalf of anybody else, you know. So their strategy towards Iran and Syria might be different. Yes, right. it, indeed, you know, it's very different because they need, uh, you know, freedom of operation. They do not need at all uh, this uh, huge Iranian influence over, you know, Syrian leadership. We are talking about Russian attempt to restructure the army. Why do they need Iranians for that? Yes, but uh, to do something practical, you know, to, to say, well, you know, you are not touching Israel anymore. You are not, uh, you are stopping uh, delivering weapons. And we, we would like for this to happen, but yeah. it's, we are not there. Mm-hmm. Again, do you have a comment? Yes. Uh, no, no, I, I don't agree with the way you describe it. I don't okay. have any illusion about the Russians. They are not our strategic allies. I didn't have even one moment any assessment they would push uh, the, the Iranians back. And if they pushed it to 100 kilometers, they do have missiles for 1,300 kilometers. They are not strategic allies. We cannot trust them. However, if they give us free hand, practically, it's a huge issue. We don't need the Russian as enemy. I hope we don't have illusion to take over Moscow or something like that, or St. Petersburg. We are a regional force. We do have one real enemy. That's Iran. If they, if they tolerate allegedly our operations, that's that's big issue. Not the way you describe it. It's not marginal. If we do have illusions, they will push the Iranians or will use the Russian soldiers in order to cope with Iran in order to 
take care of the Israeli security, that's very dangerous and stupid illusion. They are not our strategic allies. We need to distinguish between strategic alliance and the confliction. Okay, I think we have time for one more question. Uh, I, oh boy, I see three. So, well, what we can do, if you're really quick, we'll ask three questions and we give a final word, word to both speakers, okay? So, one there, one there, and then the gentleman there in the sweater, if you can get the mic over there, please. Go ahead. My name is Carol Person. I'd like your thoughts on our withdrawal from the Iranian nuclear agreement. Mm -hmm. uh, in your view, does it make Israel's relationship with Russia and Iran more complicated, more dangerous? Okay, great. And then uh, the gentleman in the, nope. Okay, great. And then, so the gentleman in the sweater there, please. Tom Parker, George Washington University. Has there been any significant internal debate within the Russian government about the wisdom of their policy of uh, deconfliction vis-a-vis -vis Israel in, in Syria? Was that a, a pretty easy call for them, or hmm. has it been somewhat controversial? You mean opposition in, to it from from, or at least discussion, or yeah. at least uh, discussion. discussion between whom? Within the Russian government oh. about the wisdom of the present policy. Okay, JCPOA and and uh, discussion in the Kremlin. JCPOA, nobody in Israel likes it because it's a matter of the interpretation of Iran is delaying the timetable. However, it's all matter of alternatives. If the alternatives that the Iranians now back on the track to develop the capabilities that will enable them to break out very quickly, that's we don't like. Of course, it's worse than alternatives that is terrible. The worst to terrible is the worst. The worst is what happening now, that the Iranians are back on the uh, nuclear track to develop capabilities that will enable them to break out in very short period of time. If they are not stopped now, it's a matter of one year or two years, it, it depends how you calculate it, before they get nuclear weapon. And nuclear weapon for Israel, is ex this is the only threat I call existential threat. You can call, you may call all threats as existential. However, there is one combination between this terrible regime, ideological, religiously motivated regime and nuclear weapon. That's the worst, and we need to find very quickly alternative, either military or other option, all options on table. <coughs> About discussion in the uh, Russian government, it sounds to me like joke. I mean, who is the Russian government that discussing it? I mean, <laughs> who is against what Putin decides? No, no, it's not my point. Ah. It's not active opposition. Was was there any kind of meaningful discussion but, uh, among Putin and his closest aides about how we should approach uh, the issue and about deconfliction? Was it an easy call for them, or did they, or Putin himself, did he say, well, it was 50-50, you know, or this is an easy call? I'm not talking about opposition. We all know that there there is no significant What, what do you mean by opposition? That's very... Discussion. Discussion. Where, in Russia? In, yes, within the Russian government, within Putin's circle. Was, I think that in we Russia, know it's very simple. He decides, and they agree. <laughs> <laughs> Fr right. from, from what little uh, I've been able to glean on the issue, my impression is that there, uh, that this indeed may have been a call 
made by Putin and maybe a decision that gets made each time by Putin himself, but that there is more resistance and skepticism well, from the uniform military. That That's what I've read. So. It's based on what? Okay. As I know, the, uh, Russia is not exactly a democracy that you... <laughs> You may know exactly what's happening between some generals. My impression, and based on my acquainti long acquaintance with them, <coughs> that even Mr. Shergu, who was the Minister of Defense, was very angry with the allegation we shot down or we were responsible for shooting down the GRU or intelligence uh, plane. It was solved since uh, Putin has taken a decision to get back uh, to the track that we are now. I mean, I mean this, the whole issue of internal opposition and discussion, uh, to be polite, is marginal. Ksenia? Just add on this very briefly about this incident with the plane that was uh, shot down by, uh, uh, by Syrians, of course. Um, what was interesting about it is, of course, that for more than one week, there was a vicious, vicious attack against Israel against Israeli military, against Israeli leadership, that came from the direction of, uh, you know, Moscow state uh, uh, TV channels and uh, newspapers and media, other media outlets. It will all very well organized, too organized to be, you know, something of, uh, you know, opposition voices. Uh, uh, again, you know, uh, we know that there is not such thing. And it was not the opposition that criticized uh, Israel, yes, but there was this kind of understanding that there was a window of, you know, expressing some genuine feelings, I would say, yes, uh, towards our country. Uh, and uh, it was very unpleasant. Uh, I was also very sorry that there was little reaction from our MFA towards, you know, this uh, incident that lasted for many, many days. Uh, and uh, I think it's quite telling about that, you know, once, you know, somebody is given the okay to attack Israel verbally, yes, which we can say strategically doesn't matter because still we continued with the deconfliction, everything is went on. But it's telling about the prospectus for the future, when there will be a decision that uh, they do not uh, anymore need uh, or that the Israeli attacks in Syria are uh, hurting the, some uh, of the vital Russian interests, then we will see, you know, a different music. We will hear different music, and uh, we will will be forced to handle with a very different security situation, which might be quite dangerous. Well, one of the most interesting aspects of the work that we do at the Wilson Center, which of course is about bringing global perspectives here to Washington. Uh, for which, by the way, advertisement, we were voted uh, two years running the best uh, think tank in the world at uh, regional studies. One of the most interesting aspects is, of course, different styles. And uh, I think it's wonderful to have our Israeli colleagues here uh, talking about an issue of mutual interest and bringing their unique style and perspective to the issue. So thank you both for that. Uh, and thank you all for joining us. <laughs>